Thank you, Brian. I appreciate it. I am grateful for the chance to preach this morning and uh, glad that that verse does not say in trust to the most qualified or the, the person uh, with the, the most years of experience or something like that, but just faithful. So that's, that's my hope this morning. And I, I'm, I'm thankful also, uh, you know, we're, we're not a big church, but we are uh, very much blessed by the Lord with a lot of gifted individuals uh, and I just am thankful uh, for you, Preston, for leading us this morning, your faithfulness to uh, not just lead in the singing and do so really well, but also lead us to worship, picking great passage to start our service and leading us through the songs. I'm thankful for Liv and singing along and in, uh, inviting us to, to, to worship. I also want to highlight, even at the back, I, I call them part of our worship team, uh, Tim running sound and Grace running words, because all of it that it's being done is so that we would worship Christ well. So I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for our church. Thankful to be with you all this morning. Uh, As we start uh, this morning looking at this truth in the next line of our creed, uh, not our creed rather, but the the Apostles' Creed, the the one that we've chosen to look at in this series uh, on this creed of the the fall, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19, and as you're turning there, I'm going to ask you to do something maybe difficult because your hands are a little busy, but keep a hand free because I want you to raise your hand if you watched a movie this week. You watched a movie, okay? Keep it up. All right, if you watched an episode or even one scene from a TV show, also add your hands to the air. Great, good. If you watched any sporting event this week, go ahead, okay, great. If you saw the score from any sporting event, okay, great. I think we've got all mostly hands up at this point. Um, It doesn't matter, y'all, if we're talking about sports, if we're talking about movies, if we're talking about TV shows, We all are a people who love story, right? We are engaged with the idea of what's going to happen. We we have a set of characters that are set up, whether it's a baseball team versus the evil Houston Astros. Who's going to come out on top? Is it going to be evil that prevails or not? Um, Or uh, or we're watching a TV show. One of those, you know, there's, oh my gosh, there's so many Marvel shows, Star Wars shows. We're we're inundated with stories, and if you follow along with any of them, you're hoping as you're watching, oh my goodness, is is the story going to end out okay for the heroes? Are the villains going to be defeated? Am I going to feel at the end of this story like this was worth watching at all? (laughs) Is this going to have a good ending that's satisfying as a a viewer, as as somebody who's engaged with the storyline? We are a people who love stories, but the reality is we love stories most of all when we get to view them right? When we're in the midst of a story, when it's our story, and we're not sure what the ending's going to look like, we're, we're not sure how this particular issue at work is going to be resolved. We're not sure exactly what's going to happen next in this season of life. When we look at our bank accounts, or we look at what resources we have, or we look at the problems that our family or we personally are facing, that's, that's a little scary, Right? That's when the end of the story starts to feel a lot more real. Well, that's what we're looking at this morning. We're looking at the end of the story, so to speak, the final chapter, the final uh, season finale, if you will, of the story of Christ. So I want to open for us the, a glimpse of the end of the story, so to speak. Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 11. John says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful. And true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. 
and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let's pray together. God, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that throughout Scripture, even in Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation 19 and all the way to the end of that book, throughout Scripture, God, you are not hiding the end of the story from us. You have shown us who Christ is and what he's come to do. I'm so thankful for that. But God, I know that there's a lot that we can uh, be distracted by, discouraged by, and tempted to look away from Christ uh, because of the, the world around us. And I pray this morning as we look intently at the coming of Jesus and the judgment that he will enact for all time, for all peoples, living and dead, that we would understand this truth. We would understand how we're meant to posture ourselves in light of this truth. Uh, and God, how, how can we live the lives that you've called us to live in response? Jesus, help us to see you, to anticipate that day where you will arrive on that horse and Christ, uh, we ask that you would enable us through your spirit to listen well. You'd give me, again, uh, not perfection, but faithfulness this morning to be able to preach this well, that we'd respond in worship, we'd respond in repentance, we'd respond in faith and obedience to you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, that's the end of the story. That's what we're looking at in this line of the Apostles' Creed. Uh, this is a significant line for us. The line says, if you, uh, we'll put the, the creed on there on the screen for us, Grace. Um, you can see on the right side there, we, we looked at last week, he ascended to heaven, sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. We're looking at the next two lines. From whence he will come to judge the living and the dead. He will come to judge. That's what we're looking at in this line. This is a very significant line for a couple different reasons. Uh, one, again, this is the end of the story of Jesus, so to speak. The, the creed is primarily focused in the middle section on the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and now the second coming of Christ. That's what we've been looking at the last several weeks. We looked at God the Father, the Almighty, the one who created the heavens and the earth in the first two weeks, but now we spent the last several looking at Jesus. After this point, we'll pivot. We'll look at the Holy Spirit. We'll look at the present reality of our faith and our church and, and many other truths of the gospel, but this is the end of the story of Jesus, and, and this is really critical for us to make sure and understand. The, the other thing that's significant about this line is that it's the first line in the creed that describes a future reality. Again, think about it. There's been a lot of wases and, you know, things that have happened that we've talked about. God made the heavens and the earth. Jesus was born, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He did uh, suffer. He died. Uh, he rose again from the grave. He ascended. These are all things that we can trace back to a point in history and say, this happened. But this line, you get that new modifying word. This is something that shall happen, that will happen. It's the future. And so we need to make sure we understand, okay, what does this mean? How, how do we how do we treat a truth that talks about the future, not the past? Or even like last week, a, a present reality, right? Jesus being right now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's a present reality. But this one looks at a future one. We want to look at it closely. 
We want to see, okay, what is Jesus going to do next? And thankfully, there's a lot of ways that this line is very, very plain. I think, I think you'll see in two sections, we'll look at the coming of Christ and the reality of the coming judgment. And I think at a surface level, we'll be able to see that, that what's being spoken about it is not rocket science here. It's, it's very plain. So let's just dive into it. Let's look at it first. From whence he shall come, from whence he will come. What, what does this line mean? Well, again, it's very plain on the surface. Jesus is going to come back. The Jesus who is born of a Virgin Mary into this world, in the God incarnated perfectly, the image of the invisible God made into human flesh, born into the world, who then ascended to heaven, he's coming back. He, he's coming back here. I mean, that's, that's incredible. Uh, John 14, we looked at this passage uh, uh, several times the last few weeks. John 14 gives us a plain uh, teaching from Jesus on this, starting in verse 1 of that chapter. Jesus tells the disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Verse 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Then in verse 6, Jesus responds to Thomas's questions by saying, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Again, this is so clear. I'm so glad John recorded this for us. It's so clearly taught throughout the New Testament that Jesus is coming back. And by the way, this is a truth that we need to stop and consider as believers in Christ to just be thankful that He is coming back for us. Because if He is the way, the truth, and the life, if we have done what Jesus preached and taught in that first verse of John 14, believe in God, believe also in me. If you've believed in Jesus, then you do know the way. You do know the truth. You do know the life. And you do know and have this sure that Jesus will come and take you to be with him. This is the basic hope of our salvation, that this Jesus that we've talked about is going to come for you. He was the one who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, sinless, so that he wouldn't inherit our sinful, rebellious nature. But he was born of the Virgin Mary, miraculously, but of the flesh, so that he would share our flesh and blood, uh, share the humanity that all of us have and were born into. He, but he lived the perfect sinless life that none of us ever could and never will. He did it in the same flesh you and I share, sharing our temptations and the trials and the sufferings and struggles that you and I go through. Like Hebrews says that he's a, a perfectly sympathetic high priest. And he did suffer. He actually felt pain. He actually felt loss. He actually felt sorrow. He actually bled. These are real things that happened to the real Jesus because the real Jesus died on a cross for his people. His heart actually stopped beating. He actually accomplished the way to heaven, the way to the Father, by dying on a cross, by giving of his life so that we who had sinned against a holy and righteous God might have life through him. And he rose again from the grave, conquering sin and death, ascended to the right hand of the throne of God where he's at right now. This is the Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only way to have a right relationship with God our Creator. And however old you are, however long you've been in this place, the truths that we'll unpack in this line are so important for us that I, I can't help but stop right now and ask, do you know Jesus? Do you believe in him? Is he truly, as you understand it, the only way, the only truth, the only life? 
Because Jesus makes it very clear in John 14, I'm coming for those who believe in me, so believe in him. Turn from your sin. Believe in Christ who can give you life. Yes, now, but also in the age to come, also in the life to come, eternal life forever with him, that he'll come back for you. Believe in him. Christian, this is the Jesus you and I believe in. And Jesus promises that he will come for us. And I've just looked at John 14, but just let me quote from from J.I. Packer here that helps give us a glimpse of how many times we see the truth of Jesus' second coming in the the, the New Testament, in the Bible. Um, J.I. Packer says, the hope of Christ's return thrilled the New Testament Christians. I love that. Thrilled the New Testament Christians as witness over 300 references to it in the documents. On average, one in every 13 verses. Did the apostles and the writers of the New Testament believe that Jesus was coming back? Oh, yeah. They definitely did. It, it thrilled them. I, I, love, I love that word. It's so true. We, we look at that over and over and over, every you know, 13 verses or so by that statistic, that Jesus will return for those who have believed in him. So, Christian, if you've believed in the Jesus that was born of a virgin, that died on the cross, and that rose again, that same truth is yours. It is, it is a future reality, but in the same way that those who believed in the Old Testament in the coming Messiah, that that faith saved them, Christian, that truth, that faith, that same Jesus is the one who saves us. That truth is yours. We can hold fast to that. And can I encourage you, by the way, I know none of us living here 2,000 years after the birth, uh, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we didn't personally witness all those things. But as we'll see in the coming verses, we will personally witness the coming of Jesus. You will see that. You will share in that moment. That's a wonderful truth that we get to hold on to. So let's, let's look at this a little bit more in depth. How is Jesus coming back? We know that he's coming back. We know that the writers talk about it, but how is he coming back? Okay. Well, the line gives us a little bit of a help here, right? Just two words, from whence? From whence? Amen, right? Yeah? (laughs) Uh, It's just old school for for saying from heaven. Not that whence means heaven, but whence means that place, this or that place. And what's the place that Jesus was just at? At the right hand of the throne of God. From whence? Jesus is coming down from heaven. Again, the Bible is very clear on this. Think back to last week when we talked about Acts chapter 1, Jesus' ascension into heaven, right? Uh, what did the angels that appear to the disciples tell them at the end of that story? He told them, hey guys, he's coming back in the same way that you saw him go up, right? What's the way that he went up? Up into the clouds. That's very consistent throughout the teaching of the New Testament. Look at what Jesus, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus himself taught on his second coming. Matthew chapter 24, starting in verse 23. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, don't believe it. For false Christs, false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness out here, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms over in this place, well, don't believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then in verse 30 of that same chapter, he says, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and great glory. Jesus is coming on the clouds from heaven. 
We see this in John's vision in Revelation, Revelation 1-7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. So how is Jesus coming back? From whence? From heaven, in the clouds, down to earth, in a way that all eyes will see him. How? I don't know. No clue. We don't get that. We just get this version of how, right? There's so many mysteries in, in the coming of Christ that those looking ahead to, to the coming of the Messiah, so many prophecies of specifically what would happen, but still so many mysterious things. What time, what way, those kind of things. In the same way, church, these are the truths. These are the promises that we have. Let's cling and hold fast to these. Jesus will come bodily. He will come in reality. He will come back for his people, and he will come in the clouds, and he will come in a way that every eye will see him. That's what the Scripture teaches us. So what do we do with this? What do we do with that truth? Is this, is this just like another show that we're watching, another you know, sporting event? This is just the final score. This is the final episode. This is No, there's so many things that the New Testament authors want us to do with this truth. Uh, and I, I, I can't even begin to cover all of them, but I, I want to at least point out a, a few of them so that we can understand, okay, what does it mean for us this morning? on November 6th, what does it mean for us that Jesus is coming back? What do we do with this truth? Well, first, believe it. Believe it. Believe that it's going to happen. This is what I was just saying earlier in John 14. Jesus calls all of those, all Jews and Gentiles, peoples from all nations, to come and believe in Him for salvation. And when you do so, this is a part of those truths that He has given to you through faith in Christ, that you would believe that He's going to come back that you and I would really posture our own hearts and minds and accept the reality, recognizing there are many mysteries, there are many things we don't know, but accepting the fact that Jesus is going to return. Believe in that. 1 Thessalonians 4.16. By the way, you just want to mark 1 Thessalonians 4 uh, and 5, great passages that unpack the truths we're looking at this morning. But in uh, chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians, verse 16, it says, Uh, and the dead in Christ will rise first at the end of verse 16. Verse 17 says, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord, what Jesus promised in John 14. Verse 18, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. That would be the second thing we should be doing. Believe it. Encourage one another. Be encouraged by this truth. Christian, are you, are you afraid? Are you afraid of what's to come? Are you not sure how things are going to work out? Are you afraid of, of death like we talked about several weeks ago? Know that the one who walked under the waters of death and came out on the other side will come and take you through that very same journey. He will faithfully take you to the end. He will. You're not going to be left alone. Christian, are you, in fact, lonely? Are you, in fact, struggling in a season of suffering, a season of isolation, a season where you're not sure how this particular thing the Lord has called you to do is going to turn out? You're not sure how this next season of your life is going to work out. Be encouraged. Jesus is coming back. We know the end of the story. We don't know all the intricacies of what will happen in every single season and moment in our lives, but we know what it is heading towards, and that is encouraging to us because what it's heading towards is not something wasteful. 
It's, it's not something just to throw away everything that's happened in the world. No, it's Jesus coming back to redeem you, to come back to receive you into His kingdom eternally so that the eternal life that you're promised that is being sealed and kept by the Holy Spirit in your own life would be fully revealed and fully shared and fully experienced in heaven with all those who believe in Him. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. Jesus is coming back. Not only be encouraged, but wait eagerly for it. Wait eagerly. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 and 28. Again, another passage we've looked at often in the last few weeks. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him, eagerly waiting what is encouraging us because of that truth that Jesus will come to redeem His people. The encouragement helps us to wait eagerly. It helps us to long for that day because of all the brokenness and everything that we see in the world around us. John, at the end of, well, really throughout Revelation, but you can see it in Revelation chapter 22 multiple times, John even very clearly records Jesus saying that he's coming soon. And John's response to that truth is to say, well, come on. Come on, Jesus. Let's go. He's, he's eager for this to happen. John, 2,000 years ago, is saying this. He is eagerly saying, come quickly, Jesus. Lord, come quickly. Paul reflects the same truths in many of his writings. We should be waiting eagerly for this glorious day where we'll see all the promises that we have yet to see fulfilled be fulfilled when Christ returns. We should wait eagerly for it. But if you'll sit in that for a moment, realize that, okay, John wrote Revelation. That's the newest book of the Bible. It's 2,000 years old. So, what's going on here? That's a long time. I mean, I'm not a historian, but 2,000 years is a long time. It's a long, long time to wait. How, how can we wait eagerly for something that has taken so long to happen that we don't know when it's going to happen, as we're going to see? Well, Peter sometimes a pretty impatient disciple himself, wrote a helpful passage for us in 2 Peter 3, starting in verse 8. He says, But don't overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So we're not only to wait eagerly, but we're also to wait patiently, and not with mankind's patience, which is really impatience, right? If we're honest with ourselves, with the Lord's patience. For with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and, and why? What's the purpose of the Lord's patience? Well, don't miss it. It's in verse 9 of 2 Peter 3. He's not slow to fulfill his promise, but is patient that all should reach repentance. What does that mean? That all that the Lord has reached out to into this world throughout time and history through the message of Christ, through the gospel, would receive that gospel, would receive that good news in faith, and would surely and definitively and finally and forevermore be saved. God will not come back a moment too soon before the extent of His repentance and mercy and grace is shown for all of His people. That's good news. That, that's good news for those of you 
who, like me, have been praying for various family members, that they would come to know Christ before it's too late. That's good news for those of you who we start to get discouraged because the time is getting on, and it just feels like it's been so long. And we don't know the mind of the Lord, and we don't know the fate of any human soul. But what we do know is that God is patient, and He desires repentance. That's what His patience is for. So Christian, to wait patiently means to preach fervently. To wait patiently means to make disciples with the time that you've been given. To accomplish the great commission that the Lord has given us from Matthew 28. And not to accomplish it like something to be checked off on a list, but that our lives would be spent in regular faithfulness, making disciples, preaching the gospel, making disciples, preaching the gospel. That's what it means to wait patiently for the coming of the Lord. Another aspect of this, if we're to wait both eagerly and patiently, um, that's, that's a hard thing to, to balance, right? Um, let me give, give you one more J.I. Packer quote that was really helpful for me. How, how do we do this? How, how do we wait both eagerly and patiently? He says, in body, budget and plan for an ordinary span of years. But in spirit, be packed up and ready to leave at any time. Isn't that good? That's helpful for me. I don't know if it is for you. Because how, sometimes it feels like, okay, Lord, how, do, how is it that like, you could come like now or you could come like 2,000 years from now. How do, how do I live like that? Well, thankfully, every promise of God, every command of God for his people is something that can be lived in the tension of those two realities. That in body, man, the Lord has given us a certain set of, amount of time for most of us, and we don't know our, our, our death day. We don't know when we'll breathe our last, but we know in general that the Lord has given us this life for his glory, to live in accordance to his purposes. So we want to live in light of that, but also the Lord is coming at a time that we don't know or expect. And so, in spirit, be packed up and ready to go. Man, be able to say at the end of a day, not that I've crammed in every single spiritual good that I can conjure up, but that I've been faithful to do what the Lord has called me to do day in and day out. This is a good application. We don't often connect this idea, but, but in Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow has enough worries of its own, Right? This is an application of this, that we would live day by day. The Lord makes that clear throughout Scripture. We, we count His mercies new every single morning because we treat it as another day to live faithfully to the Lord until He returns. That's how we, we walk in that difficult tension of eager and patient waiting. One final thought on this. If we're to be waiting for it eagerly and patiently, we need to be careful that we don't assume that we know when this is going to happen. We're given throughout Scripture, time doesn't permit me to walk through all the different signs in various ways that the troubles of the earth reflect the coming of the Lord. And that happens in many seasons and ages of, of our time and of times gone past so that believers would always be waiting eagerly, expectantly uh, that Jesus would come back. But that's very different from us ever owning the information of when Jesus will return. Jesus is very clear. Matthew 24, 36, in that same passage when he's talking about the end times and his coming, he says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. 2 Thessalonians 2, 2, 
not 2 Timothy 2.2, but 2 Thessalonians 2.2 is also a great helpful passage on this. Paul says, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to, to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't be shaken, Christian, by many false teachers and many false teachings that will circulate in our world, both in this time, in decades to come, in decades past. There will always be people who are saying, well, Jesus isn't really coming back. It actually means this. Or Jesus already came back, and we kind of missed it, and this is where it is now. Or, you know, this political event means this, or this group of people means that this is going to happen, or this natural disaster happened, so that means this. No one knows. Not a living soul knows on this earth when Jesus is coming back. We are told how to have the right posture toward it. We are not told how to figure it out. We are told to trust and to wait eagerly and patiently for His coming. I mentioned 1 Thessalonians 4. It was really helpful. Let me read the first several verses of 1 Thessalonians 5 for us that will carry us into the next reality of this line and help us concerning that day and that hour. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1 says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And while people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do. Let us keep awake. Be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. And pin this in your mind for the the coming section. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. What's Paul saying there? He's saying, Christian, believer, you're not a child of the night, you're a child of the day. And even though Jesus' second coming is going to happen like a thief in the night, it's not a way that anyone knows the exact time or hour or day or season that we might expect it in that way. But at the same time, you are children of the day. You do know that Jesus is returning. You're not meant to be surprised by this end of the story. The Scripture is very clear on this. That, that's how we hold these things in tension so well in our faith, that we might trust that Jesus will return. We might trust that it will be like a thief coming in the night. It, it will be in a way that Many of us will be surprised in terms of maybe the time or the hour or the season, but we won't be surprised by him returning. We won't be surprised by what he's going to do. And what he's going to do is judge. That's the second part of this line. And that, that's the reality we, we need to sit in here for the rest of our time because when the apostles taught and when the writers of the creed wanted to put together the central core teachings of our faith, this is the end of the storyline of Jesus in our creed. This is what they want us to see. From whence he will come, what? Or why? Or to do what? Well, it tells us to judge, to judge the living and the dead. So again, in a similar way, we're going to walk through. What does this mean? What does it mean for us? 
and how are we going to respond to it? Again, we start at a plain level here. When Jesus comes, He will judge. Again, that's the primary truth they want us to understand. There's many things we could have talked about here, that he'll, when He'll come, He will uh, create the new heavens and the new earth. He will gather up His people into His arms. He'll redeem them. All those things are absolutely 100% biblically true. But the writers want us to focus on the judgment that is coming. Why is that? Because you're like, wait a second. I, you know, I was watching this story for a different season finale. I, I was in this for a different ending, maybe. I, I was kind of on a different track on the more like feel-good aspect of things. And, you know, it's like a Disney movie. The villain just kind of falls into a, a bottomless pit, and uh, that's it, right? I don't want to really focus beyond that. But when we look at the judgment of Jesus, I believe we understand the salvation and the redemption of Jesus way more clearly. And I don't just believe that. The Bible is very clear on that teaching, that we might not shirk away from the judgment that is to come so that as we study it, understand it, and apply its truth to our lives, we might live more in light of the salvation of Christ. So, so what does that mean? How are we going to unpack this truth that he's going to judge the living and the dead? Well, i got to say, Nick Williams, his uh, teaching this morning uh, in field training was a perfect, perfect teaching for, uh, to, to happen before this sermon. Um, so let me just say, if you're not here for field training, come on. It's been so good. Come join us. Such good teaching. Uh, but we were looking at the problem of evil and of suffering in the world. And what does it mean to have any sense of what's morally right or wrong in this universe. How do we do that? Nick did a great job unpacking so many of these things. Let me just highlight a couple of them for you really quickly. Again, how can we trust that God uh, has the right to judge? Well, well, first, He's the Creator, right? We already looked at this truth in the Creed. Romans 9 makes it clear. He's the potter. We're the clay. That's our relationship to the one who has created us. We, we don't even have the capacity, much less the right to dictate how God is to relate to that which He has made. God is creator. But secondly, God is righteous, and we're not. Again, Romans is very helpful. Romans 2 and 3 is very helpful in us seeing that God is the one who is righteous, and we're not. And you can go back way earlier than Romans. Look at Genesis 3, for that matter. From the very beginning, mankind is not righteous in and of their own strength. Add in one accuser, one tempter, and all of the obedience and all of the, the faith and everything like that is obliterated away because we are inherently a rebellious people. That's what the Bible teaches so clearly. We are a sinful people, but God is a righteous God. He's not just a distant creator who set things spinning in motion. He has a loving and right and moral relationship with the entire universe and especially the pinnacle of His creation, mankind. God cares about His creation is really what that means. And if He cares, He cares about the way that His world spins, as it were. He cares about the way that we, as His creation, lives. And not, not only that He cares about that, but He embodies that Himself. He is love. He is truth. He is righteousness. There's nothing unrighteous or sinful about God. So He is the most faithful and righteous judge. That is who He is. The psalmists don't just put up with this truth. They praise God for it throughout the psalms. Let me just look at one in, in particular, Psalm 9, verse 7. It says, But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established His throne for justice, and He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. 
Write down Psalm 37. Go, that's a great psalm on the justice of God, the, the righteousness of God to be the perfect and right judge. It's very, very clear throughout Scripture. And if we're honest with ourselves, we, we do praise God for His judgments sometimes, right? We, or we praise God at least for the idea of justice, that that person over there who has done wrong to me would pay for that thing that they hit this week with their car and replace it. Or that that person who, um, you know, I, I was speeding a little bit on the highway and I got pulled over, but I know that, like, that's really kind of unjust because I just saw this maniac driving 20 or 30 over like 10 minutes ago. So, you know, we, we want our own sort of personalized idea of justice. And those are just the little things that I think we can all kind of set aside for a moment. But let's be really honest. Let's look at the brokenness of the world for a moment. Let's seriously just stop and think about the injustice that wrecks our society and our world, the senseless wars and violence, the horrible things that people are able to do to one another and get away with it, the, the, the massive amounts of injustice, whether you're talking economically or personally or in society or whatever, that many of us face. And the reality is we don't all face the same form of it. We don't. Nick pointed out really well this morning, if our hope for justice is something that can happen in this life on this earth, we're hopeless, really. Don't get me wrong. Christians, we are called to reflect the justice of God. But let's be clear, it's God's, it's not ours. We are called to live righteous, holy lives. But let's be clear, it's God's righteousness, not ours. Church, we, we need to recognize that the injustice of our world not only compels us to live just and holy lives, certainly, but to long for the justice of God, to destroy all wickedness, to destroy all injustice, to destroy all the evil that we see going on in our world regularly, constantly, on the news, personally, and worldwide. We see this on and on and on, and it's too much. And that's, that's really the third truth of God's judgment. Yeah, He's creator. Yeah, He's righteous. But we don't just need God to distantly save us. We need God to personally redeem us and to save us from this world, from this wickedness and this injustice. Jesus is the one. Jesus, yes, is the embodiment of God's love and mercy and kindness and favor towards his people. But Jesus did not just come to embody some of the aspects of God. Colossians tells us he is the image of the invisible God, the full, complete image of who he is, right? Jesus did not just come to embody those things which we are more comfortable with. Jesus is coming to embody God's judgment, to enact God's judgment. The, it might be helpful for us to just take a moment and look at the word judge, just to make sure we're on the same page here. Judge, even in the Greek, even in, in the, the biblical language of the New Testament, judge is, is a complicated word because it can mean a lot of different things. You can, you can say, well, you know, I, I have a particular judgment about a particular kind of food or a particular, you know, little tertiary choice about how you buy this or that brand or, you know, do this or that thing. We all have, like, minor kind of judgments. Um, then we can talk about, like, a judge that passes a judgment, like, in a court of law, 
right? Someone who has two parties, a, a plaintiff and a defendant, and there's some sort of conflict here. Someone's been wronged. Something, some law has been broken, and you need an, an impartial, uh, righteous, as it were, judge who has the right law to say, this is the truth. This is how this case gets decided. You're wrong. They're right, right? There's that kind of judgment. But then, then there's the judgment of what happens after that, where the person who is wrong has to pay a penalty. The person who is wrong has to do something, as it were, to make right what was done wrong. Jesus, when He returns, is not coming to line up all mankind and to decide, are you good or bad? Are you kind of good or kind of bad? Are you super good, really bad? No, no, no. Jesus is not coming as a judge so much as to decide between two things, but a judge to execute judgment on those who are already condemned or those who have believed on Him and received His righteousness. It's very important for us to understand. Jesus taught on this extensively throughout His ministry. In fact, there's, there's many, many different parables that He teaches through that talk about the reality of the coming judgment. I think, you know, most of all, you can, you can look at the one in Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats. It's a very, very critical passage to understanding what will that judgment day look like when Christ returns, when He judges the living and the dead. That, that is just to say all those who have ever lived, right? Those living at the time of Christ's uh, return and those dead who are resurrected to that uh, final judgment day. Everyone will be judged. Uh, and it's described very, very clearly that there are those who will be judged for their wickedness. There are those who will be judged because they have rebelled against a, sin, uh, against a holy and righteous God. They've, they've sinned against Him, right? And it's very, very clear that when Jesus comes to judge, when Jesus comes to judge between the sheep and the goats, as it will, J- Jesus is coming to bring an eternal judgment, an eternal punishment for those who have done nothing but throughout all of their lives rebel and sin against God. Yes, there may have been glimpses of things that you and I would call good, but when we look at the purpose for which God has created mankind for the universe, to glorify Him and to live in holiness and righteousness, the sum total is wickedness. You and I, Christian, before we came to faith in Christ, we're in that category. That's us. We, we need to recognize that. Revelation 6, I believe, talks about this, that, that when the angels see the coming judgment of God, what they declare is, it is what they deserve. That, that's a hard truth. But it's true. We are not able to fix the brokenness of the world in our own strength, are, are we? As much as we might dream and, and long for a, a righteous, just world, as much as we might live and give our lives to, to making this place, at least our little world, more and more righteous and just in small ways, we can't, we can't fix the brokenness of the world. If anything, we've contributed to it. We're the ones who set up our own personal ways of, of justice, of saying, well, I'm, I'm sort of more right than that person, so they deserve this, um, but I don't really deserve that. I, you know, I, I love mercy when it's applied to me, but I, I don't love it when it's applied to this person over here or that country or that group of people. That's a, that's a, a very important reality. If we don't recognize the it is what they deserve aspect 
of our sinful humanity, we will not be able to understand the well done, good and faithful servant looking at Jesus, looking at his righteousness that through faith has been imputed, given to us. It didn't come from within us, y'all. It comes from the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So at that day, in that judgment, before that throne of God, our hope will not be in a judge who's going to look more favorably on our good over our bad. Our hope will be on a verdict that has already been said. It is finished on the cross. A payment that was already paid. A debt that has already been taken care of. This is really interesting, too, in, in looking at sort of the, what was judgment seen as in the trials uh, in, in the New Testament age, in the Roman times? What often happened between, a, if you had somebody in debt or somebody who had wronged someone else, there would be a judge who would adjudicate between, okay, what law was broken, what happened, who's in the wrong. But the difference is, in, in our society, when that judge pronounces a, a, a sentence, right, a judgment on what happens to the one who's in the wrong, the person who prosecuted, the person who is the, the plaintiff or, or whoever it was that, that, as it were, won the case, they don't then go and take them to a personal jail that they've made, right? That's, no, no, no. Our society recognizes, okay, we need some, we need some other group, an executive, you know, aspect of our government to execute judgment uh, in our society. Well, in Roman times, there was some of that, but there's a lot of this too, where the victor of the case is also the one who executes judgment on the other, on the person in debt, on the person who had wronged them. Friend, please understand, the difference between heaven and hell is not just simply about the good and bad that we have done. The difference between heaven and hell is that Jesus, the one who was wronged by mankind and killed, will come back as the victor, as the king, as the righteous judge, not just to adjudicate between right and wrong, yes and amen, but to execute judgment on those who have rejected him. John 3, they're already condemned because they have not believed in the one who came to give them eternal life through faith. If you're in this place, and again, I've given you in John 14 the hope of heaven, the hope that Jesus will come and gather you to him, but I can't make clear the hope of heaven without also making clear the reality of hell the reality of that eternal punishment for which Christ will come to, again, not just decide who's good and who's bad, but to execute judgment, rightful judgment on those who have wronged Him personally. We, we need to sort of uh, de-Americanize, de, you know, our modern understanding of this and make sure we understand Jesus is King That's a passage I just read at the very beginning, Revelation 19. That's the end of the story when Jesus comes back He's coming as King of kings and Lord of lords. So Christian, do, do we see our, our lost neighbors, family members, co-workers, those around us as in need of that kind of redemption and that kind of saving from judgment? Have we watered down our Christianity to, to see it as something that will personally benefit us but not benefit those that live across the street from us? Christ is coming. He's coming to judge the living and the dead. And we've been given the charge to preach the good news, to declare that there's a verdict that's already been made that's available to all those who will believe 
in the name of the Lord Jesus and be saved. That the same king who sits on the throne that to his enemies will destroy, will bring eternal punishment, will look at his people and say, beloved, come into my kingdom, into this eternal rest. We, we need to preach the reality of the coming of the king. We see this uh, taught again throughout the Old Testament, uh, throughout the New Testament and the Old, by the way. A good passage on recognizing the, the coming of Christ and a good posture you might want to write down. I, Preston read from Isaiah 57. You might write down Isaiah 55, 6 through 9, that we would seek the Lord now, that today is the day of salvation. Believe in Jesus today. If this reality of Jesus' coming is, is, is more apparent to you and God is opening your eyes to the reality of your sin and the goodness of his mercy that he is patiently waiting for that day to offer to you right now, believe in it. Seek the Lord today. Repent and turn to Jesus even now. That's so clear from God's character throughout Scripture. And it's so clear because there is this time coming when Jesus will come to judge. Uh, last week in our Bible reading plan, we, we saw this when Peter was teaching about uh, the, the Gentiles and the Jews right, being welcomed into the kingdom of God in Acts 10, 42, but you can also look this week, even tomorrow, I think, or Tuesday in our reading plan, Acts 17, when Paul's talking to the Athenians, he, he says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness not arbitrarily, not abstractly, but specifically by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Have you believed in Jesus for salvation, seeing his sacrificial death on the cross and resurrection from the dead, repenting of your sin and turning to believe in him? You will receive eternal life and the glories of heaven of being with Jesus forevermore. But have you rejected Jesus? and never turned from your sin, never repented and put your faith in Him, you'll receive eternal death and punishment for your sin. This is the reality. So what do we do with this truth? First and foremost, repent. If you're in this place and have not repented, repent. Turn from your sin and believe on Jesus. Again, that passage in Isaiah 55 is so good. You know, there's a verse in that passage that says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. That verse is not talking about abstract, mysterious things that we don't know about God. That verse is talking about what came in the verses before that. Let, him, uh, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he, the Lord, may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. The mystery and the thoughts of the Lord that are so far and high above ours is that mercy and pardon that's available to you, even right now. For, for as long as you have breath and Jesus has not yet returned, God is patient and willing and wanting repentance and calling for it. So remember, Christian, your faith is what saves you. Remember repentance, not works, as the hope for that second coming. Repentance, faith, that's what saves us. That's what we're rested on. That's our hope. But there's another judgment that we, as Christians, those who do have the hope of eternal life, do have the hope of being welcomed in by our king, not because of something we've done, but because we believed in the good work of the king to make a kingdom. 
by dying on the cross and rising from the grave. That, that hope does not preclude us from any judgment ever. So again, let's be clear. The word judge and the word judgment is used in many different ways throughout Scripture. And in the same way, even in the teachings of Jesus, there's something like 20 to 25 to 30 percent of his parables and teachings that all focus on coming judgment, the last day, um, that, that kind of topic, that theme. And many of them speak about the judgment I was just talking about, the, the great white judgment throne of God. The, what we'll uh, see in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, uh, what was prophesied back in Daniel 7 that would happen, that dividing between the sheep and the goats, the wicked and the righteous, everything we've been talking about up to this point. But there's another judgment right? There's another judgment that Jesus speaks about very clearly in his teachings. And again, there's so many passages that we could go to, but I just want to look at one parable, uh, the last thing we want to focus on this morning. It's one parable in Luke chapter 19. Let me just read it for us. Luke 19, verse 11, as they heard these things, he, Jesus, proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately another application for how we should understand the coming of Christ in our waiting eagerly and patiently. This is in verse uh, 12. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minus, and he said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him sent a delegation after him saying, we, we don't want this man to reign over us. And when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. And the first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten mina more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you've been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. The second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minus. And he said to him, you're to be over five cities. And another came, said, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you're a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. He said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minus. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minus. I tell you that everyone, to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. You ever wondered why in Scripture talks so often about how we're saved by faith, not by works, and yet at the judgment day, it's the wicked and the righteous? It's the works of evildoers that are, that are being judged rightly by God, who is the righteous judge, Christ, who is the one who is prophesied to be the judge. Why, why is that? Well, Christian, it's because your faith is meant to produce good works through faithfulness that righteousness might be seen on this earth right now, in this season, until Christ comes. Jesus has given you His gospel not as a coin to be hidden away out of fear or out of a wrong understanding of who He is, but as an investment of God's good and holy and perfect salvation that it might produce good fruit in you. 
The second judgment we have to understand, even as an aspect of this line of the creed, is that Jesus will come to judge all of us who have repented and believed, who are for certain, finally and forevermore, going to be with Him in heaven through faith in Him, but to be judged for how we have spent our days, how we have spent our time, how we have spent our actions. How have we taken the the good news of the gospel, the investment of the nobleman going to receive the kingdom? How how have we spent it? And and can I encourage you? Let's not be misguided. This parable and the rest of the teachings of Jesus and the apostles are very consistent. Jesus is not looking to judge us based on a productivity or efficiency regarding moral things or regarding things that we might try to understand for ourselves in the gospel. Jesus is not going to come and to judge believers based on a certain set of numbers or metrics or things that we might be tempted to judge one another on, which we're commanded not to do, right? Jesus is coming to make sure Did this vine produce fruit? Did this man or woman who was given this investment see a faithful growth in that, even in the small way or a large way, whatever that looked like with the time that you were given? And you might be tempted, I was this week, very much so, to stop and to think, Lord, it's so tempting to think that I I don't have as much as this person. I don't have as much opportunity to do this. I don't have as much capability or skill to do this thing that this person's doing. I, it's tempting to think, Lord, you're a severe man. You're a hard man calling for faithfulness and calling for uh, a, 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 an investment to be made, a, a multiplication and those kind of things. But Christian, can I encourage you, as I was encouraging the Word, that the gospel itself is the treasure that we've been invested with, that we've been given from Jesus? And if our judgment is based on our faithfulness simply to that good news, which is eternal and forever good and produces good fruit in God's people, then, then church, we are not waiting for a day for a judge to look through accounting books and to compare numbers. We're not waiting for a day for a judge who looks at things on the outside and the appearance of fruitfulness or success in the eyes of the world. We're looking at a judge that in Roman times, uh, we, we, we see even in sporting events, who sits on a pedestal or a seat called the bima in Greek, and as he sees those in the race coming towards the finish line, he announces those who come first, second, third, awarding them with crowns for their faithfulness to run the race that was set before him. Christian, we do not have to expect this judgment with fear of man or to expect this judgment with measuring ourselves up against any other metric except the truth of the gospel which Christ has given us. And he's given us his spirit as we'll look at next week. We're not alone. For the one who sits on the Bema seat to award those who crosses the finish line is also the one whose spirit enables them to run towards that finish line faster and faster, laying aside every weight and sin and hindrance that we might run faithfully. That, that's the good news of this second judgment of Christ, the, the rewards for the faithfulness. Christian, if you've suffered for your faith, lost jobs, lost reputation, if you've given up and sacrificed, Jesus will not forget any of those. 
as you give of your life for the gospel, Jesus is a, putting together not just a place for you, but rewards in heaven that might be enjoyed in worship to him together with all of his people. That's the hope that we have in Christ. That's the hope that we look forward to. We do many things as, as believers um, to remember the judgment that is coming. One of the things is the Lord's Supper, actually. We, the Lord's Supper is not just a remembrance of a past event, but it's a remembrance that points us ahead. And I, I want to read briefly in, in 1 Corinthians 11, after the passage that we are so familiar with, where he said, I received from the Lord, but I also delivered to you. He talks about the bread and the cup. And in verse 26, he says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Why, why would he say that? We'll read on with me. Verse, verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Christian, we are going to take the Lord's Supper today and I want us to do so in a manner consistent with the way that Paul talks about it here. That with the gracious patience of the Lord that he's given us to have another day to take this meal before he returns, that we might evaluate our faithfulness, that we might judge ourselves by God's word, by the things he's commanded us to do. That we might remember the faithfulness of Christ and the perfection of Christ to accomplish everything that he did so that we might be saved so that we would not be condemned along with the world. That's why. But Jesus has entrusted this life, this gospel to us, that we might spend it faithfully. Let's examine ourselves and do that well this morning. But if you're in this place and, and you're not a Christian, you're, you're not someone who has repented and believed in Jesus, and you haven't followed him in faithful obedience to be baptized then we understand that this meal is also a sign to you of judgment, but of a different kind. That all of those who have not believed in him will be condemned, will receive eternal punishment. And so let me encourage you to consider your own heart, to consider, have I repented and believed in Jesus? Is that my hope that when Jesus returns, the world ends, I pass away from this life? That's what I'm standing on. There's nothing more precious than the broken body of Christ and his blood spilt for us that has purchased for us an eternal place in heaven. That Jesus will return for all those who believe in him. And he will be faithful to gather them into his arms and to welcome us, to reward us for our faithfulness, and to enjoy him forevermore. Let's pray together. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you are not a God that sits distant from us, but you tell us what's going to happen. That as you tell us what's going to happen, you call us to faith, and you call us to trust, and you call us to lay down everything that would hinder that. Lay it aside 
and to run the race set before us. Christ, help us to live in light of your coming, to live in light of the judgment rightly, that we who have believed in you might be found faithful, not fearful that we're not doing some particular thing or not doing some particular thing or wherever we'll be found when you come back, but like a father who returns home to his children, they've been given tasks to do, and he sees that they have been done faithfully, not perfectly, is excited and glad and warm and loving to gather them into his arms. Might we be found the same way as your children? Spirit, help us to do so even this morning. Help us to take of this bread and this cup in that great hope and soberly that we might consider how we might grow in faithfulness to you even today. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.